Um, I know that, uh, that this is, is this still technically a kind of free Anglican church? Is that what you used to be? Free evangelical, okay. But it's certainly got some type of Anglican uh, leanings, hasn't it? And uh, I also know, um, looking out, that, that there's many, many kind of uh, Methodists or, or ex-Methodists among us as well. Uh, and the reason uh, that, I, that I mention that is uh, that although in, in Dave's prayer he, he reminded us that Easter is just around the corner, technically, depending on your, your church tradition, we are actually still officially in the season of Epiphany. I don't know if you realize that. Because for me, uh, Epiphany seems to be all about like the, the first Sunday of the new year and, and the wise man, men coming to, to see Jesus. And then kind of Christmas is over and forgotten. And Epiphany sounds to me like quite a Christmassy type of thing. But, but depending on your tradition, and it does depend on the denomination, uh, but for, for most people in this country, Epiphany actually comes to an end just as Lent commences. And uh, the word epiphany is perhaps not one that you, uh, you kind of hear on the television every, every week. I think if you're watching an episode of uh, EastEnders or Coronation Street, it would be quite shocking if kind of, um, I, I'm trying to think who it might be, I was going to say Dirty Den, but that shows how long it's been since I watched EastEnders. But if somebody walked into the Queen Vic in EastEnders and said, I've had a real epiphany, I think we'd all be quite shocked. And uh, most people would wonder even if they were swearing. But epiphany basically means something like a, a kind of a revelation. The, the wise men had that epiphany of Jesus when they, they came and saw him. If you like, we could say that an epiphany is, is a light bulb moment. Or perhaps uh, another expression that we might have is it's a time when the penny drops. Something just clicks into place. And we have a deeper realization or understanding of something. And uh, the church historically uses this season of epiphany to discover more about Jesus. We should be discovering more about Jesus 365 days a year, 52 weeks a year. But nevertheless, this epiphany season is a time where we concentrate a little bit on who Jesus is, and in particular, um, the claims that Jesus made for himself. And, and I want to just talk to you this evening about these words of Jesus, where Jesus stood up and says, I am the light of the world. That's what I felt that I wanted to, to share with you. In John's Gospel, there are seven or eight times that Jesus uses the words, I am. And then he goes on to describe something about his nature. So you will all know these statements. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. Jesus said, I'm the vine. So these seven or eight times in, in John's gospel, Jesus claims certain characteristics or attributes, if you like. And when Jesus used the words, I am, they were hugely significant for the people of his day. Because as you all know, he was born into the Jewish culture. And the Jews, uh, in particular, look back to Moses. And when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, 
And, and Moses goes on to kind of say, well, look, they won't know who, who sent me. And God says, you know, I am who I am. In other words, I'm the God that existed before time because I, I, I transcend time. I'm the God that is totally self-sufficient. I don't need anybody else to exist. I am the God who is with you. So when Jesus used these words, they would have realized that he was actually claiming a uh, holy, a divine claim for himself. And uh, these words, I am the light of the world, would have been particularly significant. Can we have the, the first slide, please? Because the, the people of that day would have been very aware of this first scripture. This is Isaiah chapter 9, I think it's verse 2, where we read these words often at Christmas, uh, and Isaiah writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. The people of the day, when Jesus stood up and said, I'm the light of the world, would have referenced this scripture from Isaiah. They would have been acutely aware of it. When John, who was probably Jesus's, certainly one of his three closest friends, but, but, but he, the, the disciple who is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, wrote his account of Jesus's life, John's gospel. He started again with these words that we often read at Christmas. This is John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So right at the beginning of John's account of the life of Jesus, he mentions that Jesus is the light of the world. You'll all remember that uh, famous story of when Jesus took Peter and James and John to the top of a mountain. And, and we call it the story of the transfiguration. And uh, I'm sure you've heard many sermons preached on it and you, you've read the passage many, many times. When Jesus goes to the top of this mountain and then the Bible says he's transfigured, he's transformed, he's changed. And all the disciples can see is pure light. And then it says that Jesus is seen to be talking with Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah were very significant people for Jesus to meet with on the top of that mountain because Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And in front of Moses and Elijah, we read that there was a voice which says, this is my son, listen to him. So God was clearly demonstrating that Jesus transcends both the law and the prophets. He said he didn't come to replace the law and the prophets, but he came to fulfill all of the law and all of the prophets. So that's hugely significant. And Jesus was transfigured, and the disciples saw him in pure light. Let me say that wasn't a miracle. It wasn't a miracle when Jesus was transfigured. The miracle is actually that the light of the world was clothed in flesh in the person of Jesus. That's the miracle that God was, was constrained to a human body. Jesus' very nature is 
light. We need to really understand that. So that's just a little bit of background context for, for this passage that we're now going to look at. So if I can have the, the next few slides. So I'm going to come here so I can, I can see the slide properly. And we'll just read this story from John's Gospel, chapter 8. And uh, I particularly like this version that I've chosen for us to look at this evening. Jesus walked up the Mount of Olives near the city where he spent the night. Then at dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts again. And soon all the people gathered around to listen to his words. So he sat down and taught them. Then in the middle of his teaching, the religious scholars and the Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a woman who had been caught in the act of committing adultery and made her stand in the middle of everyone. Then they said to Jesus, Teacher, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Doesn't Moses' law command us to stone to death a woman like this? Tell us, what do you say we should do with her? They were only testing Jesus because they hoped to trap him with his own words and accuse him of breaking the laws of Moses. But Jesus didn't answer them. Instead, he simply bent down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Angry, they kept insisting that he answer their question. So Jesus stood up and looked at them and said, let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. And then he bent over again and wrote some more words in the dust. Upon hearing that, her accusers slowly left the crowd, one at a time, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, with a convicted conscience. We just hold it there for a moment. So that's one of the main passages of scripture that we're looking at this evening, the, the first few verses, and then we'll, we'll just flip over in a moment to continue it. But I want you to imagine what's happening. When we look at the Bible, it's always really important to put the stories into context. And at the beginning of this chapter, we actually read that Jesus was teaching in the temple and that at night he was going to the local mountain, the Mount of Olives, where we presume he spent the night praying. And then he was coming back down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem to continue teaching in the temple. If you just flip back into John chapter 7, we actually see that this happened at the time of what is known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Now this was a hugely significant festival for the Jewish people because this is the festival where they remember the fact that when they were led out of captivity by Moses, they actually spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness or in the desert. And during this time, God provided for them uh, manna to eat. God was present with them, and the Bible tells us that there was a, a pillar of cloud uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night, signifying the presence of God with them. But for those 40 years, they weren't living in houses. They were living in tents and makeshift lodgings and dwellings because they were moving around all of the time. And when they entered the promised land, God said to them, I want you to remember this period. And to this day, the, the festival or, or the Feast of Booths, the tabernacle, is still celebrated by the Jewish people, where uh, certainly in the days of Jesus, they would actually erect tents and go out of the city sometimes just to remind themselves of this passage of history, this story in, in, their, in their history. 
And apparently, at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, bearing in mind Jerusalem was a far, far smaller city than it is today, they erected two huge chandeliers in Jerusalem. Now, these chandeliers were so bright that pretty much anywhere you were in Jerusalem, you could see the light shining in the sky, a bit like those... Uh, they, they used to have them in America a lot, at, at film premieres where they put searchlights up into the sky. Uh, and, and even now, uh, if we look out uh, in the dark night, we, we kind of see the lights of, of the, the road nearby. Well, they would have, you know, Jerusalem was obviously been a very dark place. There was no electric lights. But during this festival, these two massive chandeliers were lit, and at night, it would have impacted on the whole of the city. So it's really important that we kind of put that context into our reading. So Jesus comes down from the mountain, he goes into the temple and carries on teaching people around him. And then the church leaders of the day, the Pharisees, start to push through. And we have to remember that this is what it would have been like. There would have been a crowd of people around Jesus. And the Bible tells us that they pushed into the middle. And with them, they were dragging a poor woman. And, and it's not quite after the watershed, so we're not going to go into this in too much detail. But as the Bible said caught in the very act of adultery. So we would imagine that she might have been half-clothed, she was probably weeping, she could be, you know, been hit already, perhaps blood coming from her mouth. We don't know. But this poor woman dragged, full of shame, full of embarrassment, full of scorn, into the very temple itself by these church leaders. And the reason they'd done it was actually because they were trying to trap Jesus. They weren't really that bothered about this woman. Now, it begs some questions. To me, the most obvious question of all has to be, without putting it too bluntly, it takes two to tango. Where was the man? Where was the man? We don't know. There is even some speculation that this was a setup. That, that, that it might even have been one of the leaders that had been with this woman. They knew what was going to be happening, and it was a complete setup to trap Jesus. We don't know. But this poor woman is dragged into the middle, and they say, Jesus, the law says this woman should be stoned to death. What do we do about it? So Jesus looks into the ground and writes something in the ground. We don't know what he wrote. Some people speculate that he... He writes in the ground um, all of the sins that the people around have committed. We, we don't know. We don't know. And then Jesus looks up and says, let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at him. I, I love that expression. It's kind of, it's easier than let him who is without sin. Let him, let the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. Because Jesus knew human nature. And he knew that every single person there had had at least one sinful desire. In fact, that's not quite true because there was one person there that had never had a sinful desire, and that was Jesus himself. But he had no intention of throwing stones at this woman. And he says to the people, look, if you've never had a sinful desire, you get on with it. Looks down again and then looks up. And as we know, says to the woman, where are your accusers? They've all gone. Interestingly, I don't know why, but the Bible tells us that the older ones went first 
followed by the younger ones. I don't know why we have that little bit of detail. Uh, again, we could speculate on it, but uh, just interesting that the the people there kind of just drift away. They're shamed. They they can't bring themselves to do do it. In John's Gospel, when we we started that reading about in the beginning was the Word, just a few verses later in chapter one, John goes on to say, "And the Word became flesh, and we have and, and dwelt among us, and we have seen him." And then John goes on to say. And Jesus came, and he was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Now, I, I, I think that's a really fantastic verse, because actually, John could have said a lot of things about Jesus. If he had said, Jesus came, and he was full of joy and love, we'd have accepted that, wouldn't we? Or if he was uh, full of, uh, of hope and faith, you know, we'd, we'd have said, yeah, I'm sure Jesus was full of hope and faith. But John chose to say that Jesus came and he was full of grace and truth. And that, I believe, is a hugely significant statement. John didn't say that Jesus got the balance between grace and truth right. He said he was full of both, full of both. And I think that helps us as a church today because we live in a society where we only have to turn our televisions on or, or look at our newspapers to see a host of darkness in our world, a host of horrible stuff happening day after day after day. We see people in our own country living very, very, I don't know whether it's immoral or amoral lifestyles, perhaps it's both, I don't know don't know what the correct word is, but we see people not living holy lives. We've just been singing about being holy, and people live lives that are far from holy. And one of the, the dilemmas that we face as a church is this. We can perhaps think, well, what we really must do as a church is just be open to everybody. We must actually say, it doesn't matter who or what you are, or what you've done, or what you're doing, come to us, and you are welcome. And as a church, we can have a very, very liberal philosophy and actually almost say, anything goes, just come and please yourself and, and come into our church. On the other hand, we can say, well, the Bible says this, and if you want to be part of our church, you've got to base your life on the Ten Commandments. You mustn't do this, you mustn't do the other, and you must do this and you must do that. Now, let me tell you that neither of those positions are helpful. And I'm exaggerating for the sake of illustration, but you will see many churches that fall into one of these categories or, or verge towards one or the other. We see many churches that are perhaps really very, very liberal in their interpretation of things, uh, and, and we know all about stuff like gay marriage occurring in churches and lots and lots of stuff where the, the, the truth is watered down so much that it just becomes a kind of wishy-washy, feel-good club. But then we also see other people that are, that are so strict and, and severe and austere that, that the whole thing is completely unappealing to anybody that lives in the world because they say, why on earth would I want to go to that a lot and have to live my life like that? Because there's no life in it, there's no fun in it, it's just a, a strict set of rules 
and regulations. And as I say, Jesus didn't get the balance right between grace and truth. He was just full of grace and full of truth. And I don't think he demonstrated that grace and truth anywhere better than in this story. Because he says to the woman, where are your accusers? And she said, well, they've gone. There's nobody here to accuse me. And he said, well, neither do I accuse you. But then he said, now go and don't sin anymore. Full of grace, full of truth. And I think as individuals and I think as a church, we should strive, if we want to be like Jesus, to be full of grace and full of truth. Jesus was exposing darkness at the time. Yes, the woman might have had some sordid pasts. We know that she was committing adultery, so certainly she, she wasn't kind of the nicest of ladies. But the real darkness, the real darkness in this story, I believe, is actually the darkness of the Pharisees' hearts. Because they didn't see any grace at all in this situation. They saw this poor woman, and they just thought, we can try and trick Jesus. And it, out of their darkness, they were prepared to, to see this woman slaughtered in front of them, stoned to death, just to prove a point. And I think that is the real darkness that Jesus was exposing. And then he stands up and he says these words, until finally Jesus was left alone with the woman, standing there in front of them. So he stood back up and said to her, Dear woman, where are your accusers? There is no one here to condemn you. Looking around, she replied, I see no one, Lord. Jesus said, and I don't condemn you. Go, be free from a life of sin. And then he carries on. The very next verse, and it's so important that we see this context of the Feast of Tabernacles and this story about this lady, because straight afterwards, Jesus says, I am light to the world. And those who embrace me will experience life-giving light. And they will never walk in darkness. The Pharisees were immediately offended and said, you're just boasting about yourself. Since we only have your word on this, it makes your testimony invalid. Jesus responded, just because I am the one making these claims doesn't mean they're invalid. For I absolutely know who I am, where I've come from and where I'm going. But you Pharisees have no idea about what I'm saying. For you've set yourselves up as judges of others based on outward appearances. But I certainly never judge others in that way. You know, when I read these stories about the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus, I, I, I do have to say I, I struggle with some of it because part of the dilemma is that, that it seems to me that Jesus didn't like to spend much people that spent a lot of time in church, and that would kind of apply to us in a way, wouldn't it? And I, I do think, you know, how would we react? We'd like to think, well, we didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. But if somebody came in our midst, upsetting the, the status quo, causing trouble, our natural reaction would be to be against him. But having said that, these Pharisees, and it's easy to kind of tar them all with the same brush, but they'd seen the miracles They'd seen the miracles that Jesus performed. They'd seen the lepers that were cleansed and actually were presented in front of them, completely cleansed. 
in the name of Jesus. They, they'd probably seen him feeding the 5,000. They'd, they'd seen other, or, or have known of other wonderful things. But they couldn't bring it upon themselves to accept that Jesus was who he claimed to be. They just couldn't accept it. You know, of all the people who ever lived, I think Jesus really was his own man. He knew who he was. He never tried to justify himself. He never gave a sign to the Pharisees when they demanded one. He never built a powerhouse. He never mobilized an army. Jesus just shone. He just revealed his light, and he trusted that the people he shone in front of were the right people to see it. This, the Pharisees didn't see Jesus' light, not because he wasn't shining, but because they were, were blind to it. That's the reason that they didn't see the light of Jesus. If you consider yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, there will be some moment in time or period of time where all of a sudden you've had an epiphany, you, you've actually seen who Jesus claims to be is true. You, you've come to a realization of exactly who Jesus is, what the claims of his life are on you. And you will have been turned from being blind and not seeing the light of Jesus into seeing the light of Jesus. Now, I know that for some of us, we could actually say it was on the, the 9th of September, 1975. And for others of us, it will be well, I haven't got an exact date because, you know, I was brought up in the life of the church and I just know as a young person there was a period in my life where, you know, Jesus became more and more real to me. Whatever your journey is, if you are a Christian, you will have had this epiphany moment. You will have had the scales fall off your eyes. You will have, have seen Jesus in his light. And therefore, if you have people that you are close to, if you have members of your family, close friends, who... You've, you've been praying for for years and, and they just don't ever seem to have responded to Jesus. Don't be surprised and, and don't be upset. They just haven't had their epiphany moment yet. But you've got to believe that they can still have that moment. Don't give up. Keep on. Keep on. Just trying to share Jesus. You see, there's lots of things inside which can stop people and can stop us actually seeing the true light of Jesus. Sin in our life, addictions in our life, being in love with the world, ambitions, having the wrong priorities, having doubt. All of those things can be darkness in our lives. And then Jesus reveals himself to us and he shines into our light, into our lives and it makes the whole difference. I said there were quite a few times when Jesus made claims about his life. You know, I'm the bread of life, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the vine. Of all of the statements that Jesus made about himself, this one is actually unique in one particular way. And that is because all of the others just relate to who Jesus is. You know, he, he said, you know, I am uh, the gate and you must enter through me. Uh, and he doesn't then say, and you also are to be gates. Uh, he says, I am the vine. Uh, and, and he then doesn't go on to say, and you also have got to be vines. He said, you, you know, you're to bear fruit. But when he said, I am the light of the world, later on, he also says that we are to become light for him. 
as Christians. And I want to end with this point. Can I just get the next slide on, please? The one after that, thank you. This is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. And uh, these are the words of Jesus again, talking about that. No one would think of lighting a lamp and then hiding it in the basement where no one could benefit. A lamp belongs on a lampstand where all who enter may see its light. The eyes of your spirit allow revelation light to enter into your being. When your heart is open, the light floods in. When your heart is hard and closed, the light cannot penetrate and darkness takes its place. Open your heart and consider my words. Watch out that you do not mistake your opinions for revelation light. If your spirit burns with light, fully illuminated, with no trace of darkness, you will be a shining lamp, reflecting rays of truth by the way you live. That, that's a fairly modern translation of, of that, uh, that passage, which I know you'll have heard and read many, many times. But Jesus is therefore saying, look, what's in here is what's really important. And he, I like that expression. It's quite clever where he says, watch out, you do not mistake your opinions for revelation light. In other words, don't be too willing and happy to take the moral high ground all the time. Don't always just think because you know that you're right, you are right, and that means you're right. Don't mistake what you think is actually real revelation light. There's, there's another version of the Bible that kind of says if the darkness is in you, if the light within you is darkness, how very, very dark is that? And we all have this capacity in our lives to allow things to come into our hearts which cause the light of Jesus not to burn as brightly as it really should. But we are called by Jesus to be lights. He is the light of the world. His very nature is light. But he wants us also to be light. I'm just going to conclude with a, a brief story about somebody I know many people in, well, quite a few people in, uh, in here will remember. Um, you all know that, that uh, I, I was at, at Five Ways for, for nearly 40-odd years. And there was a person, when I started going to Five Ways, uh, called Eli Whitten. And some of you I know will remember Eli. Uh, I'm sure he preached here many, many times. And uh, when I first started going to Five Ways, you know, Eli was, uh, was quite a strict type of austere character in many ways, wasn't he? You know, he always wore a very dark suit. And, um, you know, I, I thought when I first met him, gosh, this, this, this guy's quite strict and a bit stern and, you know, I want, need to watch my P's and Q's while I'm around him. As I got to know him, I actually realised that he, he'd got a, a different side to his nature as well. And actually he was a very warm and loving person. Uh, but he, he kind of clothed it in a bit of a, a strict outer expression sometimes. But I remember one time I was, I was over at Five Ways. Uh, just attending the evening service, and Eli was out preaching. And I have only seen this, I think, once in my life. And Eli came back from preaching somewhere. I don't know where he'd been, but he, he came to, to pick Lily's wife up after church. So it would have been about, I don't know, quarter past, half past seven, about this type of time. It was a dark evening, and Eli came onto the church car park just as I was walking out of church. 
And I've never seen this in anybody else before, but Eli's face literally was a glow. There was a light there, particularly in his eyes, that I'd never seen, and I don't really think I've seen it since. So It was so remarkable that I went up to him, and I said, what's happened? What's happened? And he just said, I preached tonight, and two people were saved. And he was full of the joy and the light of the Lord in such an amazing way that just like Moses uh, when he was exposed to God in the Old Testament, his face shone so much that he had to cover his own face from the, from the people of Israel. Eli was full of the light of Jesus that night, and I actually saw it in him. My, my wife Carol once had one of the, the nicest things that anybody could ever say to a person, said to her. She was working in Russell's Hall Hospital. She was treating an old dear uh, with some problem. I don't know what what the problem with this lady was, but Carl was just treating her in a hospital setting, in a uniform, and this old lady grabs the hand and she said, I can see Jesus in your eyes. Isn't that an amazing thing for somebody to say? That's what I want people to see in the world. I want the light of Jesus to shine out of me so much that it's tangible that people can see it. And that if we're Christians, is what we should all be aiming for. So I just want us to spend a moment in prayer as we, we conclude, just thinking about what I've shared, that this whole thing about the light of the world, Jesus' nature being light, being full of grace and truth, shining in a dark world and knowing that we have a job to do, to shine through Jesus. So can we just close our eyes and... Just spend a moment thinking about what God said to us. And then I'll just leave us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you've been with us this evening. I thank you for reminding us that, that Jesus was full of grace and truth and that he is the light of the world. His very nature is pure, holy light. And I thank you, Father, for the privilege of trying to represent that light in this dark world. For all of us, we know there are things that we can think and say and do, attitudes we can have, doubts that we may have, so often we will let the light dim down in our lives because we're following other things. So this evening, Father, we just come before you once again and open our hearts to you. Just allow you to put your finger on any dark parts of our lives that need doing. We ask that you'll cleanse us. We ask that you'll flood us with your light. And we pray when we go from here, we will be shining for you, Lord Jesus, because we've been in your presence. In your precious name.